0: I should like to call your attention this morning to the words which are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the second chapter, verses 20, 21, and 22, verses 20, 21, and 22 in the second chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, and are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone in whom all the building fitly framed together groweth into an holy temple in the Lord, in whom ye also are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. We still are considering this uh, tremendous and uh, most important and vital statement which the apostle here makes with regard to the nature of the Christian church. We have seen that uh, in order to bring uh, this uh, doctrine home to the minds of these Ephesians, the apostle implies three pictures. One uh, is that the church is like a state or a kingdom. The second is that it's like a family. And here uh, we are dealing with the third picture, which is that the church is like a great building, a holy temple, which is being built up and is going on in its process of erection in order that it may be an habitation of God, a holy temple in the Lord. And now we are analyzing this third picture. We have seen certain things. The apostle gives us a general description of it. Then he has taken us into the detailed description. He has told us about the foundation It's absolutely vital in connection with any building. And then he has gone on to tell us something about uh, how the building takes place, and in particular uh, we have been looking at our several places as stones, living stones in this great edifice that is thus being built up. That, he tells us, is the way in which we should regard ourselves as Christians and as members of the Christian church. And in that connection, we have seen that he clearly teaches certain ideas. There is this element of choice and of rejection, inevitably. Then another thing we emphasized was this, that all the stones are not identical. That's one of the distinguishing features between a stone building and a brick building. The stones are not all the same in size or in shape or in any other respect. They're all in the same wall, but they're not identical. And then we went on last Sunday to deal with the actual way in which we are prepared for our respective places and positions in the walls of this great and glorious temple. And we emphasized there the fact that the work is a secret work. It's a work that is done beforehand, and it is a work that is done without noise. And we try to draw from those principles the appropriate doctrines which are of such extreme importance at this present time with all this talk and power about unity and union and a great idea of some marvelous world church to counteract and to resist the forces that are opposed to the Christian faith. Well, now then, we still have to go on, because there is no aspect of this matter that we can afford to take for granted. And indeed, we notice that the great apostle himself is very careful to keep us to the details, so that we shall not go astray at any point. Now, he is anxious, I say, particularly, that these Ephesians should realize the privilege of their position. There is nothing on earth which is in any way comparable to being a member of the church of God. Oh, you see, he goes on reminding them, uh, you, uh, therefore, he says, are no more strangers than foreigners. You were there, you were like that. You were without God, without hope in the world, but you're no longer there, you've been brought nigh. Indeed, you've been brought into this amazing position, that you are now stones in this building that's going to be a habitation for God. There is nothing so essential to Christian living as to realize our position in Christ, to realize the privilege of our position. And it is Christian people throughout the centuries who have been most conscious of this, who have rarely taken in the scriptural teaching and have realized that it's true about them, who have always been the greatest saints. And therefore the apostle, I say, impresses this upon them, and uses this multiplicity of images in order to bring out the idea. And of course, at the same time, he shows them the amazing power of God. That was the thing with which he originally started, of course, in the first chapter, He prays that the eyes of their understanding might be enlightened, that they might know, amongst other things, the exceeding greatness of His power to us that believe. The power that brought Christ from the dead. That's the power that puts us where we are in the Christian church, nothing less. But in a very special way, as I say, He's anxious that they should get hold of this principle of unity. That is the thing the apostle never ceased to be amazed at. That the Gentiles should be fellow heirs with the saints. That these people who are beyond the pale, who had no dealings with God, who were aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise, that they've actually been made one with the Jews in Christ. It's not surprising that the great apostle felt this as he did. He had been a very narrow Jew, and he had despised the Gentiles. He was a Hebrew of the Hebrews, and so on. But to him was in a very special way given this particular task of bringing in the Gentiles. And there he sees them all together. One in Christ, the middle wall of partition is gone. Of twain, one new man has been made and the apostle is filled with a sense of amazement and of wonder. And therefore I say that he elaborates this whole question of unity. And we cannot leave this statement, therefore, without again looking at this aspect of the matter. For the question is that uh, for us to understand the character of this unity, and as I say, it's of such great importance at the present time, with all the talk concerning this matter. Well, now, having dealt with the position in general as we've been looking at the building, we must now concentrate upon ourselves the practical application and outworking of this in our own daily life and conduct. Therefore, I say the problem for us can be stated in some such terms as these. How can we have unity without uniformity? Or, if you like it in another way, how can I remain an individual and yet not be individualistic? Now, I think you'll agree that this uh, is one of the major problems confronting the whole civilized world at the present time, not only in the matter of uh, religion or of the Christian faith. It's a great problem everywhere. For instance, in this country, there are people bemoaning the fact that with our so-called welfare state, the individual is being lost. We become numbers, we become units, we become items. People are very fearful of this. Of course, it's rather amusing at times to notice the people who are fearful of this. So often, in other respects, they've rather gloried in uniformity. In the matter of education, things like that, Uh, they've gone in for something which everybody else does, and you've got a common type and product produced, they don't seem to see it there. Uh, But in the welfare state, if this does concern them, they say, that the individual's being lost. And it is a very serious and a very important matter. There are always these tensions in life. How do you combine equality or equality of opportunity with individuality? Because we must all agree that we were never meant to be all identical. We were never meant to be like peas in a pod or just a row of postage stamps. Oh no. So that you've got to combine these two ideas. You've got to remove or to mitigate gross injustices and yet you've got to realize that your egalitarian ideas do not produce a dull, drab, mechanical sameness. Man's not meant to be a machine. We are all individuals. We are all given certain peculiar qualities and characteristics, and we were meant to have them, and we are meant to retain them. Now, a few Sundays ago, in dealing with this question of these stones, I emphasize that from the standpoint merely of our functions in the church, how we are not all meant to be the same. Now, the apostle brought that out, you noticed, in the twelfth chapter of 1 Corinthians that we read at the beginning. Some apostles, some prophets, some helps, governments, and so on and so forth. We are not all meant to be doing the same thing, but we must take that idea further this morning, because we see this, that we are all in this same building. And yet we are not all identical. There are differences. Our individualism, in a sense, remains. And yet I say we must not be individualistic. Very well, then, let us look at this problem, which is a problem that is often posed in the New Testament itself. For instance, you'll find the apostle... Uh, in the last chapter of the epistle to the Galatians, on the surface, uh, contradicting himself. Of course, he doesn't contradict himself, but he appears to be doing so. This is what I read. He says, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. That's the second verse. In the fifth verse, I read this. Every man shall bear his own burden. That's it. How do you at one and the same time bear one another's burdens, and yet bear your own burdens? How can you all be parts of that wall, and yet how can you all, in a sense, still remain distinct? Now, the answer, it seems to me, is given here quite plainly by the great apostle himself. And I say we must hold on to this principle. It is so characteristic of God's work in every realm and department, Look at it in creation, in nature. There are no two flowers that are absolutely identical. They belong to the same family. You have your number of flowers, you give them the same name, yet no two of them are identical. Thank God for that. It isn't mass production. This individual element is always preserved. There's some slight difference. It's the same with the animals, isn't it? That is the glory of creation. You've got this infinite, endless variety, and yet there is this wholeness, this perfect blending. Now, that is, uh, that is always the, the mark of a, a living action, a creator. Machines don't do things like that. The glory of a machine is that there's no variation. Each one comes out in turn exactly like the previous one, and there shouldn't be a difference. If there is, you reject it. Sameness is the characteristic of mechanics. But it's not the characteristic of the artist. It's not the characteristic touch of the creator. Oh, here I say you have this marvelous diversity and yet the perfect unity. There are no clashes of color in nature. There are many different colors and yet they all always blend perfectly. You've got the right shading of one into the other, and they're always put together in this perfect manner. Well, now, that is exactly the kind of unity that obtains in the church. And it is vital, I say, that we should hold on to that. In every section, in every department of the church, in the whole of the life of the church, we must immediately suspect any proposal or any idea that makes us all the same and does away with this stamp of the mark of God, which is always, as I say, a great characteristic of his working. Well, now, how is this unity, this uniformity, this diversity, how is all this to obtain at the same time? Well, the answer, it seems to me, is twofold, as it is almost invariably in the Scripture. There is what God has done in this respect, And there is the appeal and the exhortation to us to work out what God has already brought into being. In other words, it's uh, another of the variants on the theme, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God that worketh in us, both to will and to do, of his good pleasure. Well, now then, the first thing, therefore, is uh, what God has done about this. And what he has done is this. The great source and guarantee of unity is the fact that this building is the work of the Holy Spirit. Here it is in the verse, verse 22, the last verse of the chapter, in whom you also, he says to the Ephesians, are builded together for an habitation of God through the Spirit. Now, there has been discussion as to the meaning of that phrase, through the Spirit. There are those who think it means that God dwells in the Church through the Spirit. Of course, that's perfectly true. It is in the person of the Holy Spirit that the Godhead dwells in the Church. Others have said that it it means this, that the habitation is a spiritual habitation, Again, of course, that is perfectly true. But it seems to me that both those ideas rather miss the point here, while they're perfectly true and are stated elsewhere. Uh, surely that isn't the thing that the apostle is stating at this point. What is really saying here is this, that the habitation is being builded by the Spirit. That's the point. That is the idea. And it is here, you see, the way in which this fundamental principle of unity is rarely established and preserved. Now, we must never forget that this last section, beginning at verse 19 and going to the end of the chapter, is rarely an elaboration of verse 18, where we read, for through him, through Christ, we both have access by one Spirit unto the Father. And then, you see, he elaborates that idea. We both, there is the distinction, uh, by one Spirit have access, there's the unity. But it is the Spirit that produces and preserves and guarantees the unity. And therefore, we must look together this morning at the way in which the Holy Spirit does this. Oh, this is an amazing thing, I say. That men of women and women of different countries and of climes and of cultures and of traditions, different psychologies and temperaments, and all the rest of it, how all of us together are in this one building and are parts and portions of the same edifice. The differences, the similarity, the oneness, the unity. Now the Holy Spirit, I say, is the guarantor of this. The Holy Spirit is always the executive in the work of salvation. This chapter, this second chapter of Ephesians, is, of course, a great exposition of Christian redemption. We started with the hopelessness of men. We then see the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Of course, it all centers on him. And he's done the work by his blood, by his cross, by his death. We've been through the great and glorious terms. There it is. He has accomplished a redemption. Yes, but the question is, how does all that come to me? How am I brought into all that? How am I made a living participator in it? Well, the answer is that that is the peculiar work and operation Of the Holy Spirit himself. So the apostle inevitably has to bring in the work of the Holy Spirit here in verse 18, as I say. And then he repeats it here at the end of verse 22. It is Christ by dying on the cross that has broken down the middle wall of partition. Here is the possibility of bringing Jew and Gentile together. Yes, but how did it happen? Well, it's the Holy Spirit that does it. He is the builder of this temple. He is the one who is producing this great edifice as a habitation for God. And that is how you and I come into all this and are involved in all this. But we must look at this in detail in order that we may see how wonderful it is. And I say again that there is nothing which is more glorious in experience or in life than just this. There is no miracle which is in any way comparable to the miracle of the Christian church. And you see, my friends, it's because we don't grasp this and don't realize it that we fail to function as Christians as we ought. You see, the apostle was not merely saying something at random when he says that the greatness of the power that is working in us is only to be measured by what God did when he brought the Lord Jesus Christ up again from the dead and conquered hell and Satan and broke us under the bands of death and raised him up into the heavenly places. That's the power that's working in us. And you know, if the power were not as great as that, the Christian church would have exploded and ceased to be centuries ago. What is it that keeps the church together? What is it that keeps us all together? What is this peculiar something that makes us know when we meet one another, that we've never seen one another before, that we belong to one another as Christian people? Well, I say this is the great and amazing work of the Holy Spirit. What does he do? Well, let's look at it. Let's spend time in looking at it. Let's glory in it. Look at it like this. It is the Holy Spirit and he alone who convicts us all of our sins. That is his first work. But it's a very vital bit of work in connection with this unity. We could never be brought together were it not for this. Far by nature, and as the result of sin, we are all self assertive. We are proud. We are boastful. We can always explain our own deficiencies. While we denounce the same thing in somebody else, we can always explain it in ourselves. That's how man is by nature self contained self-admiring, self asserting. and all others are the same. You say, how can you possibly get a unity out of people like that? How can you ever get a building of people who are so different and so individualistic? Well, you see how essential the work of the Holy Spirit is in conviction of sin. He brings us down And he brings us all down to the same level. It is he who brings us to see that we're all miserable sinners. It is he who brings us to see that all our righteousness is but as filthy rags. And if he didn't do that, unity would be quite impossible. Someone would be priding himself or herself upon some particular virtue. Some particular goodness, some special thing that happens to recommend me to God, whereas it doesn't recommend anybody else. No, no, unity is impossible apart from universal conviction of sin. It is he who brings us to see that we are dead in trespasses and sins, that we've got nothing to say for ourselves. You see, the great apostle has already been doing it all for us, wherein in time past, he says, you walked to these Ephesians according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Then he goes on to say this, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past. The apostle would never have said that before his conversion. He would never have put himself in with Gentiles in their miserable failure walking in the lusts of the flesh fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind he would never have admitted it you of course the chosen people of God righteous the others unrighteous but now we all It seems to me there's something very wrong with our conception of Christianity if we don't glory in this fact that we were all dead in trespasses and sins. You know, if you think you've got any life in yourself and in and of yourself, I don't see how you can be in this wall at all. You can't possibly fit in if there's any lingering vestige of any self-righteousness or self-dependence. It's arrogating something to yourself, and to that extent you're withdrawing from others. You can't be fitly framed together if you're like that. Impossible. No, no. The Holy Spirit does a very thorough work. You see, we are prepared, as you remember, for this building before we are brought to it. It was done away in the quarry somewhere, and it's a very violent work. It's a very humbling work. But thank God it's a thorough work. We find ourselves as one in sin and one in failure, one in deadness spiritually, one in hopelessness, one in despair. And it's the Holy Spirit that does that. And you see, there's a wonderful basis for unity immediately. One touch of nature makes the whole world kin. There is none righteous, no, not one. All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Where is boasting, then it is excluded. It's a tremendous work, that. And it's a painful work. And a difficult work. I'm almost tempted to tell you the story which one of my predecessors in this pulpit, Dr. John Hutton, used to be fond of repeating, of how a man on one occasion went to a mission hall. And he was a Christian man, but he hadn't been to a meeting like that before. And he was rather put off by the noise and the shouting. And all the clamor of it all, And he was so disturbed by it that he ventured to go to the missionary at the end of the meeting and said that he was rather amazed at this, that he read in the scripture that when the temple was in building, there was no noise of hammer nor of axe, but that the building went on silently, to which the missionary replied, it can be misunderstood and yet I think there was an element of truth in what he said, that's why I'm quoting it. The humble Missioner looked at these men and said, Sir, he said, we are not building temples here, we are blasting rocks. They were both right and they were both wrong, it seems to me. But there was an element of truth in what the Missioner said. The blasting of the rocks has to be done. And it is noisy, it's painful. That's done, you see, before the stones are brought to be put into the walls of the temple. But it's got to be done somewhere. There must be this conviction. There must be this breaking down. And it's not surprising that there should be weeping and shouting and opposition and crying, but the Holy Spirit blasts. And we need to be blasted entirely free. Of all this self-concern and self-righteousness and pride and all these other things that make unity and being fitly framed together a sheer impossibility. Very well, that is his first work. I've stayed with it because it's so vital. But come, we go on to consider this, that it is the Holy Spirit, the same Spirit, who enables us all to see and to receive the truth. No man can receive the gospel in and of himself. Listen to the apostle saying that elsewhere. The natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him, neither can he. The princes of this world, he says, didn't recognize the Lord Jesus Christ. For had they known him, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But God hath revealed them unto us by his Spirit. There it is. We are not only one in sin, but we are one in our inability to receive spiritual truth. It's the Spirit who makes us all able. Or listen to the Apostle John saying it. In his first epistle he says, but ye have an unction from the Holy One, and ye know all things. And again he says in that second chapter of the first epistle, but but the anointing which ye have received of him abideth in you, and ye need not that any man teach you. This is the peculiar work of the Holy Spirit. So that, you see, no man can stand up in the church and say, well now, I am a Christian and I have received and believed this Christian truth because of my great brain, because of my great mind and understanding, because I've been trained in philosophy, because I've got this profound natural insight. No man can say that. Do you remember how our blessed Lord himself put it? I thank thee, O Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that thou hast hid these things from the wise and prudent, and hast revealed them unto babes, even so, Father, for so it seemed good in thy sight. And that's one of the most blessed and glorious things about the Christian church. We come into a place like this as one. All the divisions that are important outside are no longer relevant here. They don't count here. Of course, in the world, they do count. A brain does make a difference. Education does count. Training is of vital importance, but not here. You may have all that and be spiritually blind. And if I may so put it, it is this alone that makes the work of a preacher possible. If it were a matter of natural ability and understanding, well then I should have the feeling always that I could only address a certain section of the congregation. All are not able, all are not brilliant, all have not been trained and haven't trained minds, but I thank God that I care not who comes in here. I care not how poor, how small, how illiterate, how uneducated, how ignorant, how small, and puny the brain. The power of the Spirit can give the truth to any. You see, the foreign mission enterprise would be ridiculous if this were not the case. How could you possibly evangelize people who can't read and write, whose minds have never been trained at all? But the Spirit brings the enlightenment, and the Spirit is as essential in the greatest brain in the world this morning as he is in the most ignorant hottentot. tot. There is no difference. It is a spiritual truth. And it is a truth that can only be made acceptable to us by the operation of the Holy Spirit upon us. The natural ability cannot receive it. Thank God. There would never be unity amongst Christians and in the church were it not for this. Except ye be converted and become as little children, ye shall in no wise enter into the kingdom of God said the blessed Lord himself. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he said to that teacher, that master in Israel, Nicodemus, you must be born again. For that which is carnal, natural flesh is of the flesh. And that which is of the spirit Is Spirit. Thank God, I say, the Spirit does a very thorough work in that respect also. And then, of course, I go on to emphasize this. He leads us to exactly the same truth. For there is only one truth. I needn't stay with this. I emphasized it when we were dealing with the foundation of the apostles and prophets. But I've got to mention it again in this connection, and here it is once more the Spirit leads to the same truth. And therefore the unity of the church is not a unity based upon an absence of belief. It is the unity that is born of the same belief. He shall guide you, says Christ, into all truth. And what is the truth? Well, he again himself has expounded it when he says this. The Spirit, he says, shall not speak of himself, which means he shall not speak about himself. He shall glorify me. Here's the unity. The Holy Spirit, you see, always leads us and points us to the same truth. And it is about the Lord Jesus Christ and him crucified. Oh, I have to go on saying this, because of what I read and what I hear and all this modern talk about. Oh, if we all say we are Christians, we are all one, and yet some of them deny the deity of my Lord. I have no fellowship with such a man. I have no unity with him. I am not fitly framed together with him. The Spirit points to him. To his eternal power and Godhead. Proclaims him as the Lord of glory. Who was in the bosom of the Father from all eternity. And that he was made flesh and dwelt among us. He points to the miracle of the incarnation and the virgin birth. He shows us him demonstrating and manifesting his miraculous power and his deity. He points above all to the blood of the cross. It wasn't men who decided to have a communion service and break bread and drink wine. I have received of the Lord that which also I committed unto you. It's his command. It's through the Spirit we do it all. He leads us to these things. And you see, this is the thing that finally makes us one, that we've stopped looking at ourselves and we're all looking at him. And we're all so charmed by him and so attracted, and we all so love him that nothing matters but that. And so unity, you see, goes on, the work of the Spirit, in bringing us to him and making us gaze upon him. We all, with open face, beholding as in a glass, the glory of the Lord, are changed into the same image from glory to glory as by the Spirit. That's it. That's His work. And there is no unity apart from this. The glory of the Lord and His work. Yes, but you know the Spirit does something even more wonderful than that. He unites us to Him. He joins us to Him. We become parts of him. We've been emphasizing that in these three verses, are built upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom all the building fitly framed together, groweth unto holy temple, in the Lord, in whom also we are in him. And if you're not in him, you're not in this wall, you're not in this building. Go back to that illustration of the apostles about the body, and there it is perfectly. We are all in the head. All the parts of the body are joined to the head organically. It is this intimate, mystical union with Christ that makes us living stones. We have no life apart from him. And then, of course, he dwells in us all. The Holy Spirit dwells in us, every one of us. Know ye not that your bodies are the temples of the Holy Ghost? He's in every one of those stones, and wherever he is, there's the same spirit. You see, that is the thing that's so marvelous. Some of us are mercurial, some of us are phlegmatic. Some of us are boisterous, some of us are quiet. Some of us have this characteristic, some of another. Yet, but when the same Spirit comes into us all, we all become one. And we're all playing the same parts in our different ways. The unity and the diversity are preserved by the Spirit. And then, of course, he goes on to produce the same fruit in us all. The fruit of the Spirit is the same in all Christians, whatever they are in a natural sense. And here is the fruit. Love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance. There are the nine fruits of the Spirit. And do you notice that every one of them promotes unity? Every one of them. And as the Holy Spirit lives in us and works in us, we produce the fruit of the Spirit. And look what it produces in all of us. Love. You can't have unity without love. Or you can have a mechanical coalition. You can have some product coming out of a machine, all stuck together. But that isn't life. That isn't true unity. That's the mere absence of differences. This is a vital living unity. And it's love. Joy. Joy. When you've got joy, you're easy to live with. It's when we're miserable we become angular. Love and joy and peace. When you're at peace, you're at peace with everybody when you've got peace within. But when you're disturbed within, you're ready to shy at a tangent when the first person comes near you and even speaks to you or even before they speak because you're lacking in peace. But the Spirit produces peace. Long-suffering. Oh, I'll come back to this God-willing next Sunday, but oh, how vital it is in being fitly framed together. Long-suffering. Bearing with one another, putting up with one another. Gentleness. Oh, the world is losing something at the present time. It's becoming loud and rude and impolite. Gentleness is gone. Modesty is no longer, it seems to me, regarded as a virtue. But loudness and assertiveness and a boldness and an arrogance. The fruit of the Spirit is gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, meekness, temperance, self-control, self-discipline. The ability to hold yourself in, not to say what you've got on your mind, just say, no, I won't. What a blessed thing. And you'll never be fitly framed together until you've got this temperance, this discipline, this self-control. Well, then, one other thing that I must mention just to make my list complete for you this morning without expounding it. The Holy Spirit is the giver of all the gifts. Oh, I needn't keep you, Paul has said it all so perfectly in that, let me use the term, that brilliant argument in 1 Corinthians 12, where he ridicules this idea of comparing and contrasting the gifts, and of envying and despising. He says, look here, you've got no gift but that has been given to you. There are diversities of gifts, but it is the same spirit. All these worketh the one and the self-same spirit, dividing to every man severally as he will. I can see, says the eye, and this is the only thing that matters, it isn't, you know. It's equally essential to be able to walk and to smell and to feel. All the gifts are essential. But none of us can boast of any gift we may have because we haven't generated it, we haven't produced it. The Holy Spirit has given it to us. So boasting is abolished and we all rejoice in the gift we have, whether big or small. It's come from the same giver and he has his function for it. And therefore I can glory in it, though my gift is a small and a humble and an uncomely one. Thank God I'm in the body, and I'm an essential part of the body, and it is he who has put me there and made me what I am. It is all the gift of the Spirit. So that as we recognize the diversity, we at the same time are being reminded of the unity. We are all different in a sense and yet we are all one because we are all parts of the same building. We are members of the same body. And finally it is he and he alone who gives us all the power. The power to live. The power to mortify the deeds of the body. The power to pray all the power that we need in the whole of our Christian life and experience. It is he who gives it all. What have you, asks Paul of those Corinthians, that you have not received? And the answer is nothing. Therefore, let us not glory in men, let us not glory in ourselves. Let us glory alone in the giver. You see, it is because the building is being put up and erected by the Holy Spirit that you have a guarantee of unity in the diversity. God willing, I say, we'll go on to consider what all this means in practice for you and for me in order that we all may be fitly framed together in this holy temple in the Lord. Amen.